From points across California, you're listening to the Disneyland edition of the Diz Unplugged. This is the Diz Unplugged Disneyland edition, episode 396, for the week of January 25th, 2015. The Diz Unplugged Disneyland edition is brought to you by Dreams Unlimited Travel, helping you plan that perfect Disney vacation. Visit them on the web at www.dreamsunlimitedtravel.com. Hello everyone and welcome to the show. I am your host Tom Bell. I'm joined by my good friends Nancy Johnson, Mary Jamalad Willie, and Michael Bowling. And in this segment, Michael continues his lead up into Disneyland's 60th anniversary. We've got a big announcement coming this week, so it's a great week to celebrate the 60th. What are we going to talk about, Michael? Well, in this episode, Tom, we're going to talk about the first decade of Disneyland. Very cool. Yeah. At the end of its first year of operation, Disneyland was secure in its popularity, but it did not stop growing. The first decade brought many improvements and changes as Walt Disney continued to experiment with his living laboratory. Now, the park desperately needed to add more rider capacity. So they purchased an off-the-shelf amusement ride from Arrow Development and named it the Midget Atopia. Unlike the other Atopia cars where the driver was in control, the Midget Atopia were simple four-wheeled dark ride cars that ran on an electrical bus car down hmm. the center of the pathway, which is the same technology used on most dark rides. The attraction opened only in the summer and on the weekends. Most guests did not realize the entrance to Fantasyland, Sleeping Beauty Castle, was just a shell. An empty stage set made of wood and fiberglass with only one piece of steel in the entire structure. Bill Martin, the art director of Fantasyland, had wanted to install a camera obscura in the castle's tallest tower so guests could view the whole park from that vantage point. Walt had Eustace Lysett, head of the studio camera department, go to Santa Monica to see their camera obscura and discovered there was not enough light for the 40-foot throw, so the tower became just a tower. But empty spaces were an anathema to Walt Disney. So he invited Ken Anderson, who just completed work on the film Sleeping Beauty, and set designer Emil Curry on a walkthrough of the castle they discovered the castle was less empty than Walt had thought. The trio ascended the ladder high inside the castle, and Walt continued speaking to Anderson. Now, Ken, I know this is awfully crowded, but I'm sure you can build a Sleeping Beauty attraction right in here, in this <laughs> castle. Hmm. Meanwhile, Emile Curie, dressed in an immaculate white suit moved ahead of the group and was poking curiously around the interior. It seemed everywhere he poked, he discovered cats. There were cats on the beams, cats on the walkways, and cats underfoot with practically every step. These cats were feral and not the least bit friendly. It appeared they had taken up residence in the castle during construction two years earlier. Curie jumped over a partition to a spot where a large cardboard box rested with a gunny sack on top, and in the dim light, he picked up the old gunny sack. Suddenly, his sparkling white suit turned gray. He let out a half-scream, half-cry for help, and began jumping up and down and began running towards Walt and Anderson. "'We were covered with fleas,' remembered Anderson.' 
It seemed the whole area was so filled with cat fleas that they were happy to see people. <laughs> we, we were slapping ourselves and rolling up our trousers when Walt said, Don't worry, fellows, I've got a phone here. Walt made a quick call and said, Hello, this is Walt. There was a pause. Walt Disney, that's who. <laughs> <laughs> Emile Curie immediately ran from the castle and through the park to escape. After the trio left the castle and were defleed, Walt would not allow the cats to be harmed. In his mind, an entire civilization had taken up permanent residence in the lifeless castle. He had his staff arrange for the cats' relocation, finding new families for what became known as the Castle Cats. Hmm. It was decided to build a walk-through attraction. Anderson started by modifying the castle exterior to fit in the attraction, since the castle was not originally designed to be occupied. The two retail shops on either side of the castle were reduced in size and the ceilings lowered. Windows were moved and doorways cut into the walls. The arches that had been open on the first day were enclosed to house the room with the goons. When the attraction opened in 1957, guests climbed a winding staircase through the castle where beautiful miniature dioramas unfolded before them, telling the story of Sleeping Beauty. The dioramas were developed well before the film was completed, so a number of the scenes did not match the film when it was released in 1959. Not content for his steam trains to simply function as a transportation system around the park, Walt was determined to create some sort of a show involving the trains. On March 31, 1958, guests were invited to take a trip through the Grand Canyon Diorama, based on the future Academy Award-winning Disney Cinemascope film Grand Canyon. It took the creative imagination of Walt Disney and his artisans more than 80,000 man-hours of design, painting, and construction to complete this first reproduction of Arizona's famed Grand Canyon, proclaimed a 1958 Disneyland press release. The diorama, the longest in the world, measured 306 feet wide by 34 feet high. It had consumed 300 gallons of paint and 14 pallet covers applied to a seamless, handwoven canvas made especially for Disneyland. Walt got the idea for the diorama whilst visiting museums in Los Angeles and New York. Disney artist and Imagineer Claude Coates was asked to work on the project. Walt sent me down to the Grand Canyon to get the right look of it and what it should be like, Coates reported. We did the storyboards once again, and Walt pretty much liked all of it. Coates added some wild turkeys roosting in a tree, and Walt said, They don't have wild turkeys in the Grand Canyon. <laughs> Coates disagreed and told Walt he saw some in a museum. Later, Walt was showing the storyboards to a guest and asked, do you know they have wild turkeys in the Grand Canyon? The guest replied, Gee, no, I didn't know that. Feeling confident, Walt turned to Coates and asked again, Are you sure they've got wild turkeys in the Grand Canyon? Coates was ready for Walt. Prior to the meeting, he had called the Grand Canyon's park superintendent. Yes, Coates replied, and the flocks are on the increase. Emile Curie directed the taxidermy shop. 
The diorama included mountain lions, deer, desert mountain sheep, various birds and animals native to Arizona, and wild turkeys. However, this project would result in a new policy at Disneyland. When Walt was giving a tour of WED, he opened up the freezer and saw a frozen carcass of a skinned coyote left there by the taxidermist. The diorama would be the last time real animal skins would be used in an attraction. Walt did not want to get the reputation that Disneyland killed animals for attractions. On the day of the steam train's first trip through the Grand Canyon diorama, Walt Disney was joined by Fred Gurley, chairman of Santa Fe Railroad's board of directors, and Chief Navaganwa, a 96-year-old Hopi Indian. Walt had at long last brought a special significance to the first little railroad that had chugged its way around his backyard so many years before. Ron Dominguez, who was supervisor of Adventureland and Frontierland at the time, recalled that Walt Disney liked to see the rivers of America busy. He'd sit at the chicken plantation house and do some of his dreaming about expansion, and he wanted the river busy and exciting. It was one of those days at the Swift Chicken Plantation House when Dick Nunes, who was the manager of Frontierland at the time, met with Walt to survey traffic along the river. Walt Disney's official biographer, Bob Thomas, tells the story. The Mark Twain was pulling away from the dock. One keelboat was landing at the pier as another departed. Two rafts were crossing the Tom Sawyer Island, and three Indian canoes were racing around the bend. Look at that, Walt exclaimed. Nunes expected him to complain about the congestion, but Walt said, Now there's a busy river. What we need is another big boat. When Nunes asked Walt what kind of boat, Walt replied, Not just another stern wheeler. This time we need a sailing ship. I think we should have a replica of the Columbia. Did you know that was the first American vessel to sail around the world? What Dick Nunes did not know was that Walt had already asked Admiral Joe Fowler to look for a second ship. Walt had instructed Admiral Joe Fowler to visit every maritime museum in the country. Fowler had concluded the perfect ship to reproduce was the 1787 sailing ship Columbia. This seemed to be exactly what Walt had in mind. So Fowler was commissioned to build an exact but scaled-down replica of the original. The superstructure was built at the Disney studio, and Walt became totally fascinated by the process of the construction. Fowler told him it was customary when building an old sailing ship to put a silver dollar under each mast for good luck before it was set. Walt personally put a dollar under each of the three masts of the Columbia. The Columbia's 90-foot flat-bottom hull was built in Todd's shipyards and trucked into the parking lot. From there, it was lifted onto three flat cars by the Main Street Station and brought to the Frontierland Depot. The hull was lifted from the train sideways and hoisted into the dry dock at Fowler's Harbor. It was the first three-masted windjammer built in the United States in more than 100 years. The recorded narration track by Old Salty was done by the host of the Golden Horseshoe Review, Fulton Burley. When the Columbia was christened on June 14, 1958, at a cost of $100,000, 
Walt assigned this popular Mouseketeers to be the uniformed crew, and he had Admiral Joe Fowler outfitted in a skipper's uniform of the 1700s. The same day the Columbia set sail in Frontierland, Alice in Wonderland opened in Fantasyland. This attraction had been considered for Disneyland's opening day, but budget constraints postponed it for several years. Walt put Claude Coates in charge as show designer. Coates had worked on the film and was assisted by Colin Campbell, Blaine Gibson, and Ken Anderson on the attraction. Like many Disneyland attractions, this one started as a walkthrough and was later designed as a two-story ride-through above Mr. Toad. Since the attraction was designed later than the other dark rides, it was more dimensional, with animated three-dimensional characters in Tolji Wood and an unusual outside track section. Coates wanted a more elaborate exterior queue than the other three dark rides. After several design considerations, including an English countryside scene and Bill Martin's little cottage with Alice's feet sticking out the windows, as in the film, the exterior became a garden of giant dandelions and stylized blades of grass. The first proposal for the ride vehicles was to have guests ride on a deck of cards. Walt did not care for this idea and suggested a caterpillar. Coates designed the two-toned five-passenger Caterpillar cars. Blaine Gibson molded the model used for the car's fabrication, and Imagineer Bob Gurr helped with the engineering of the cars. He purchased car frames from Arrow Development and added the Caterpillar bodies. Gurr installed the lowest gear ratio he could use to get the Caterpillars up the steep incline to the second floor. Like the other dark rides, the guests would play the role of the lead character. Alice and a caterpillar were not seen inside the attraction. Narration was done by Catherine Beaumont, who voiced Alice in the film. Now, Bob Gurr, who built the Main Street vehicles, thought it might be fun if Disneyland had its own fire truck. One day, as they were on Main Street USA, he turned to Walt and said, Hey, Walt, you know what we haven't got? A fire truck. Gurr waited for a response, but got none. Walt just raised his eyebrow, never a good thing, and walked away. What Gurr did not know was that Walt had a boyhood passion for fire trucks. Gurr was sure he was in trouble and ran to his office. As he walked through the door, the phone rang, and it was the accounting department. They told him he had some money to build a fire truck. Bob Gerd designed two 1900s-era fire trucks powered by a 12-horsepower, two-cylinder engine. They were red, and the space traditionally holding the horses, the hoses, was replaced by bench seats. The bell and siren are authentic, and the trucks were hand-built at the studio. When Gerd drove one down the Santa Ana Freeway from the Burbank studio, he had to go slowly and caused a traffic jam. He stopped at a corner, and a small boy yelled out, Hey, mister! By the time you get to the fire, it will be out! The fire trucks first rolled down Main Street on August 16, 1958, and became one of Walt's favorites. Walt continued having concerns with keeping the tomorrow in Tomorrowland. The realm offered only two attractions with any claim to tomorrow, the Utopia Freeway and the Rocket to the Moon. 
Then in 1957 came the Santa Fe and Disneyland View Liner, the first future-oriented transportation system to be introduced in Tomorrowland. A slick, well-proportioned train of the 1950s, it resembled the Buck Rogers-style spaceships from the old serials and comic strips. They were billed as the fastest miniature trains in the world. Walt would accept no steam, diesel, or electric power for his trains of tomorrow. The power plant built by Bob Gurr was an Oldsmobile V8 rocket engine, and the dashboard was a transplant of a 1955 Olds 88 instrument panel. There were two six-car Viewliner trains, the Salmon Tomorrowland Viewliner and the Blue Fantasyland Viewliner. A 25-cent B ticket was all you needed to board at either of the two stations, one located where the monorail station now stands, and the other over by the Matterhorn in an area known today as Alpine Gardens, near the former motorboat cruise. On the day of the Viewliner's official dedication, the salmon-colored train was driven from the railroad barn along the spur track through Fantasyland and into the Tomorrowland station. Bob Gurr stood proudly by as Walt greeted the invited guests. Then, just as the ceremonies were to begin, the electrical system shorted out and the train caught fire. Bob opened the hood of the train and billowing clouds of smoke poured out. Walt walked over, looked at the smoke, then looked at his watch. Time's up, he said. Put out the fire and let's go. As Walt and Bob squeezed into the tiny cab, Bob drove on the left-hand side and Walt waved from the right and drove off. But even before that inaugural run, the Viewliners were destined to disappear into railroad history. As the Viewliner cruised between Tomorrowland and Fantasyland, it became clear Walt desired more from the transportation of the future. Walt and Lillian enjoyed traveling in Europe because they were not well known there. On a driving tour of Europe, they visited Wuppertal, Germany, and had to ride the nine-and-a-half-mile monorail train. Wuppertal is a mountain town with a curving river. The train went into service in 1901 and was the easiest way to go up and down through the town. The track was hung between pylons along the banks of the river. The train hung freely from the overhead track. Walt had always wanted a monorail for the park. In Herb Ryman's earliest sketch for Tomorrowland, a monorail just like this was passing over the entrance. However, the swinging cars made Lillian feel ill. As the trip continued, the couple was driving near Cologne, Germany, when a monorail train crossed over their heads from the right to the left, from the factory to the administration building. Walt immediately pulled up to the administration building and learned about the Alweg Company. The Alwig monorail was different from the train that had made Lillian queasy. The Alwig train rested on a single beam beneath, beneath instead of hanging from the track. This became known as the German saddlebag method of monorail construction. The first prototype had gone into production in 1949. Bob Gurr said, I've often thought that ten seconds either way and Walt would have driven right by and never have seen that thing. Walt wanted one for Disneyland. Walt learned the experimental train had been running for the past five years on a mile-long test track that cut through the middle of a farmer's wheat field. 
Walt gathered all the information he could, and upon his return to the studio, dumped it all on the desk of Roger Brogy. Within three weeks, Roger and Bob Gurr were sitting in the Alweg offices in Germany. Later that summer, Walt and Lillian visited Zermatt, Switzerland, to watch the filming of the live-action adventure Third Man on the Mountain, which tells the story of a young Swiss man who conquers the mountain that defeated his father, the Matterhorn, one of the last great alpine peaks to be climbed. Walt loved the Skyway ride at Disneyland, but he thought the tower on Holiday Hill was an eyesore. Walt's vision was to hide the Skyway Tower inside of a scale model mountain. Disney artist Sam McKim even included a mountain with the tower sticking out of the top in his 1957 fun map of the park. One day an employee from the Disney studio was visiting the park and found Walt sitting on a bench between Fantasyland and Tomorrowland, staring off into space. What are you looking at, Walt? she asked. My mountain was Walt's response. Disneyland's operations staff had been asking for a thrill ride, and Walt had included a bobsled ride in the original Disneyland prospectus. Walt had asked Joe Fowler, Do you suppose we could get some snow and have a toboggan ride here? After some research, Fowler explained to Walt the complexity of maintaining the snowmaking equipment. Walt understood and gave it more thought until he heard about wild mouse-style roller coasters. On his trip to Switzerland, Walt became fascinated by the dominating angular peak of the Matterhorn and became determined to bring it home to Disneyland. He sent two postcards of the Matterhorn to the model-making department at WED. On the back of each was scribbled the simple note, Build this! During its development, the mountain was known as Mount Disneyland, Disneyland Mountain, Mm. Sorcerer's Mountain, Magic Mountain, Fantasy Mountain, Echo Mountain, and, jokingly, the Volterhorn. Now, Monsanto had been one of the original lessees and had been happy with the initial response to the Hall of Chemistry in Tomorrowland. In 1956, Walt Disney called John Hench about a new Monsanto exhibit called The House of the Future. The Massachusetts Institute of Technology helped design the house in partnership with the architectural firm of Hamilton and Goody, and with the plastics division of the Monsanto Chemical Company, who hoped to demonstrate the feasibility of plastic construction to a housing industry obsessed with wood. Construction began in 1957, and the Monsanto House of the Future opened on June 12, 1957. This was exactly the type of exhibit Walt wanted for Tomorrowland. The 1,280-square-foot house was placed in a prime, undeveloped area to the left of Tomorrowland. The design was a white cruciform with four curved wings, cantilevered from a 256-square-foot central core. Its four gracefully curved fiberglass wings balanced themselves atop a square, 16-foot-wide center column. Each wing of the house was 8 feet tall, 16 feet wide, and 16 feet long, and could support more than 13 tons. Inside those wings were three bedrooms, two baths, a living room, a dining room, a family room, and a kitchen with the name Adams for Living. If another bedroom was needed, a new wing could simply be bolted on to the existing house. There was lots of magic in every one of those rooms. 
floating furniture, appliances that disappeared at the touch of a button, wall-sized TV, ultrasonic dishwashers, microwave ovens, plastic sinks with adjustable heights for growing children, telescreen intercoms with golf ball-sized microphones hanging down from the ceiling, electric razors, electric toothbrushes, and even phones that dialed by themselves. Overhead, trans-ceiling polarized lighting filters filled the rooms with a warm glow. The Climate Control Center constantly monitored the temperature and humidity as it sprayed out scents of flowers, pine trees, and sea air. There were electronic controls for just about everything, and it was all made from plastic. Hardly a natural material appears anywhere in the house, Walt Disney proudly proclaimed. The Monsanto House of the Future represented Walt's vision for Tomorrowland. This was an opportunity for the average person to experience the leading edge of technology and to not fear the future. He was so excited about the project, he suggested to his daughter Diane and her husband Ron Miller that they should consider living in one. (laughs) (laughs) The Millers decided it was not for them. Now, Disneyland's success had created competitors. After C.V. Woods Jr. was dismissed from the Disneyland team, he had started his own company, Marco Engineering Incorporated, and helped build Magic Mountain in Golden, Colorado in 1957, Pleasure Island in Wakefield, Massachusetts in 1959, and Freedomland USA in the Bronx in 1960. In nearby Santa Monica, a group of investors spent $16 million in a lavish makeover of the 28-acre Pacific Ocean Park, nicknamed Pop. The park opened on July 23, 1958. They had hired Hollywood set designers and redesigned the park to an oceanic South Seas theme. Attractions included a gondola ride, a flight to Mars, a safari dark ride, and a train. Coincidentally, on the same day Pop opened, Walt Disney sent a memo to his staff describing the roles and responsibilities for the greatest expansion to Disneyland since its opening. Dick Irvine would be in charge of the project that would include the monorail, the Matterhorn bobsleds, and the submarine voyage. Claude Coates and Bill Martin would be the art directors. Coates would work with Bob Sewell on the show's overall design. Martin would design the track layout and architectural planning. Roger Brogy and Rachel Rogers were to engineer the animation and effects and work with Ub Iwerks on projections. George Feldkapp and Jim Eddy were the lightning designers. Admiral Joe Fowler would oversee civil and structural engineering. Bob Gurr, working for Roger Brogy, would design the submarine vehicles and their drive system. Work began immediately. The Santa Fe and Disneyland Viewliner closed on September 14th, and the Junior Utopia closed the next day. A month later, Bob Gurr delivered his first rendering of the monorail Viewliner. Bob Gurr recalled that meeting. I made that famous drawing with two trains crossing in the air and brought it to a meeting in the animation building. I put the drawing up on the wall, and Walt walked in and just looked at it. His eyes lit up, and he reached out and tapped it and said, Bobby, can you build that? And I said, yeah. Walt just looked around at everybody and said, okay. And that was it. End of meeting. Bob laughs when he talked about how he came up with the famous styling for the monorail. 
When I saw the boxy German train, I thought it was the ugliest thing I'd ever seen. It looked like a loaf of bread with a slot in the bottom. As Bob worked on the design, he recalled the old Flash Gordon spaceship. I needed a way to hide the wheels of our train and at the same time create a distraction so you wouldn't notice the concrete beamway underneath. I sketched out the old Flash Gordon spaceship, an arrow-shaped cylinder with a big swept-back wing on the top and one on the bottom. Then I erased the wing from the top, drew in the old viewliner cars along the back, and there it was, the monorail. For many, the most identifiable design element of the Mark I monorail was the plexiglass bubble on top for the pilot. Gurr credited that feature to Walt. As Gurr was working on early drawings for the monorail, Walt stopped by and noticed the shape of the cab. Similar to a motor coach, the driver was in front, and a bench was provided right behind for the guests. Walt took one look at the drawing and told Gurr, I don't want any passengers looking down the greasy neck of a motorman. Not being able to pass up another train at Disneyland, the Santa Fe Railroad agreed to become a participant in the new highway in the sky. The Santa Fe and Disneyland Allwake monorail was in production and would become the first daily operating monorail system in the Western Hemisphere. By the end of 1958, Bill Martin had completed the complex master plan for the 1959 expansion. It was no easy task to stack the submarines, Utopia and the monorail within the same space. On December 4th, Walt announced the $5 million expansion to the world. This would become known as Disneyland's second grand opening, and nothing would ever be the same. In 1959, Disneyland allowed many of the store and restaurant leases to expire, so the park could take control of the locations and replace them with Disney-owned companies. Disney was also taking charge of most backstage functions. Walt now had complete control. Main Street USA was enhanced by the addition of the Disneyland Flower Market and the Hills Brothers Coffee House and Restaurant. Hallmark replaced Gibson selling greeting cards, postcards, and party goods. The Upjohn Pharmacy added a six-foot plastic model of a basic cell mechanism of life. Utopia had proven to be a popular attraction, so Walt decided to double the capacity by adding a brand new course in Fantasyland, which opened on January 1st, 1959. The Fantasyland version was very similar to the Tomorrowland version, but what was the most remarkable was the unity it had with other attractions. What many guests did not realize was they were driving on top of a building. Just below the tree-lined roadway was the submarine voyage. This was just one component of an amazing feat of engineering design. Bill Martin had created an area layering the submarine, monorail, motorboat crews, and the Tomorrowland and Fantasyland Utopias all in one area. At the bottom were the submarines and the motorboats. Just above were the two Utopia tracks. Up in the air was the monorail riding on its beam. The Mark V Utopia cars were introduced as part of the Fantasyland project and were just as unreliable as the earlier versions. Yale Gracie and Rolly Crump were given the assignment to go through each Fantasyland dark ride and update all the effects. Meanwhile, construction on the monorail trains had commenced. The contract to build the train was given to a company in South Los Angeles that specialized in building garbage trucks. The factory is located right next to an old rendering plant, Bob Gurr recalled. 
As we worked on the trains, we'd see the workers over there sitting down on the carcasses of dead horses and eating lunch. The workers weren't the only ones sitting down. The garbage truck company wasn't performing as well as had been hoped, and the project slipped further and further behind schedule. It quickly became apparent that a garbage truck factory next door to a rendering plant was not the place to create the future of transportation. So the partially completed trains were picked up and hauled back to the studio, where they took over the 20,000 leagues under the sea soundstage. The team worked night and day, seven days a week, trying to finish the project. The stage is roped off to keep away visitors who would only slow down progress. Walt would walk up to the rope every so often and peer into the chaos, but he would not venture beyond the rope. The very first monorail train, the Red Mark I, was delivered to Disneyland just two weeks before its planned dedication on June 14th. The train was set upon the monorail spur line, at that time behind Fantasyland. Bob Gurr wanted no one on board the train the first time he turned the throttle, for safety reasons. The electricians made the final connections, and Bob climbed into the pilot seat. And then, in through the door walked Walt Disney. I'm taking the first ride, Bob, he called as he climbed into the rear cockpit. Bob sighed and put the train in motion. The monorail moved less than a foot, then stopped with a lurch, and a deafening whine began to fill the air. As the sound's intensity built, the electricians all dove for cover. Bob quickly cut off the power and jumped out of the train. Afterwards, the electricians apologized and explained they must have cross-wired the huge electric motors, powering the monorail. One engine was trying to pull the train forward, whilst the other was simultaneously trying to pull it backwards. Oh my gosh. (laughs) The opposing forces had sheared off the axles and let the motors run wild. The electricians also explained why they had dived for cover. If the motors had built up enough force, they'd have exploded and we'd have been picking up pieces of the monorail and of you from a quarter of a mile away. Walt suddenly emerged from the back of the train and muttered, Big deal. In subsequent days, the train did get off the spur line and onto the track in Tomorrowland. It experienced experienced endless electrical problems, mostly centered around a series of overheating resistors. It was the day before opening when the monorail finally made its first trip all the way around the track. The Matterhorn bobsleds is a Disneyland attraction that has never been duplicated. The Matterhorn's location on the site of Snow Hill meant it would be built right next to Sleeping Beauty Castle, near the foot of Main Street. Harriet Burns, one of the very first Imagineers, remembers that everyone thought, oh no, not again. Walt has lost his mind. A snow-capped Swiss mountain right there on Main Street? Well, at Disneyland, anything is possible, but some things are just silly. Harriet Burns was assigned to make the first model of the mountain using photographs from Life magazine, postcards, and the Encyclopedia Britannica. She recalled, I made it like a birthday cake with layers on it, so if I boo-booed, we could take out a layer and put in a new one. Harriet tried to be as accurate as possible. One day, an official from the Smithsonian told her the overhang was a little more than was correct. Her reply, we told him that it was poetic license for the shadow pattern. It wasn't long before the steel framework for the mountain was rising on the former site of Snow Hill. The structure was like an eight-story building. The first floor, four floors were the ride. 
the fifth floor a break room for the mountain climbers, and the top three floors with a couple of exit doors called Walt's Ledge and the Italian Door. Hundreds of full-size wooden shapes were cut to give the mountain its form. Those wooden shapes were buried behind tons of cement, which formed the rocks, caverns, and waterfalls of Matterhorn Mountain. The construction process was complicated by the Skyway. The original Skyway support tower had to be removed whilst holding the cable in the same exact spot. They did not want to chance moving the cable layout, so they removed Snow Mountain and the main tower, built Matterhorn Mountain, and put the cable back in the same spot as before. In less than a year, Walt had his replica. It was exactly one one-hundredth the height of the real mountain, 147 feet versus 147,000 feet, costing one and one-half million 1959 dollars. The roller coaster inside the mountain, designed by Bob Gurr, is considered the first steel coaster ever built. It was also the first roller coaster allowing multiple cars to run on one track at the same time. Walt, of course, was anxious to take a ride down his new mountain. It would be quite a ride down the slopes, especially when the bobsled reached the mountain where the track ran out. But that didn't deter Walt Disney from taking a ride on his new mountain. He had Joe Fowler put a huge pile of hay at the end of the track to stop the car, then hopped in a bobsled for a ride. After his third or fourth ride down the mountain, Walt turned to Joe and said, Hey, this is great! Can't we find some way to add all this hay to the show? Joe Fowler was especially concerned about the safety of the bobsleds as they careened down the mountain. He found a water ride in a park outside of London where the vehicles were slowed by landing in a pool of water. This was adapted at Disneyland into the bobsled splashdown, which would become one of the most photographed scenes in the park. Shortly before the mountain opened, Joe Fowler breathed a sigh of relief as he surveyed the construction site. I think we'll finish it on time, he told Walt. But next time when we have to build a mountain, let's let God do it. <laughs> With its next great attraction, Tomorrowland went from the heights to the depths. The submarine voyage was born of an attraction that didn't make it off the drawing board. Dick Irvine talked to Walt Disney about a glass-bottom boat cruise over a picturesque lagoon in Tomorrowland. The guests would see underwater life and a live show, not unlike Florida's famous Cypress Gardens. But Walt took the idea even further. No, let's do a real submarine ride. Let's take them down and give them ports to look out of. Bob Gurr rendered the initial drawings and adopted the look of the USS Nautilus with a conning tower and portholes. Engineering of the submarines was a challenge since Bob assumed the submarines would actually submerge six feet below the water. Bob thought he could propel the subs using a cable system, but after he and Roger Brogy traveled to San Francisco to study its historic cable car system, they quickly abandoned this idea. Roger Brogy convinced Walt to simulate the sub's nuclear power with diesel engines. As the design and layout progressed, it became clear the submarines would not be able to simply cruise through the existing outdoor lagoon. The mechanics of the animated creatures designed by Roger Brogy and Bob Gurr and the requirements for controlled lighting called for a large separate show building. Landscaper designer Bill Evans provided the solution. 
After a great deal of discussion with the engineers, he convinced them to design the show building to carry a heavy load of topsoil and support the winding roadways of Utopia. We literally landscaped the roof, remembered Evans. We designed it to look like a naturally woodsy scene that actually enhanced the Utopia. Early on, the United States Navy expressed an interest in becoming involved in the project, but retired Admiral Joe Fowler recommended against it. His 32 years in the Navy had taught him that Disney would be so hamstrung with orders and regulations, the ride would probably never be completed. The project called for eight 52-foot fully air-conditioned submarines, each with enough individual 12-inch portholes for 32 passengers. They were built at the Todd shipyards in San Pedro, causing costing $80,625,000 each. The first submarine was delivered on April 25th, and the lagoon was filled for the first time on April 26th. Testing ended on May 2nd, and the rest of the fleet was delivered by May 23rd. Bob Sewell and his divers worked overnight for three months installing the seaweed, fish, clams, mermaids, and other props throughout the attraction. The sparkling 9 million gallon submarine lagoon was kept clear by a vacuum system that pulled up to 1800s of gallons of water per minute through filters and screens. The water was tested three times a day and the park claimed it was pure enough to drink. The submarines traveled at 108 miles per hour along 1,365 feet of track, with 650 feet out in the lagoon. Because the submarines actually did float, they were connected to two 10-foot guide wires. Each submarine was powered by a German-made 40-horsepower diesel engine that generated electrical current to the 10-horsepower motor. The sub had a 34-inch four-blade bronze propeller, and each boat was named after a U.S. Navy nuclear power submarine, the Nautilus, Seawolf, Skate, Skipjack, Triton, George Washington, Patrick Henry, and Ethan Allen. Walt called it the world's largest peacetime submarine fleet. A lightly themed float loading dock was constructed underneath the monorail platform. The motorboat cruise was also updated as part of the expansion project. To blend in with the rest of the attractions, the boat explored a new waterway with two new lakes and a whitewater rapid section. The boats were redesigned and a new two-sided loading dock was built. The grand reopening of Tomorrowland came on June 14, 1959 and was considered the second opening of Disneyland. Just like the first opening four years earlier, it was seen on a special nationwide telecast. Millions of viewers turned into the ABC television network to watch Disneyland 59 to celebrate the park's fourth anniversary and the opening of the Matterhorn, Monorail, and Submarine Voyage. As the show began, host Art Linkletter asked Walt, How do you feel? Walt replied, Like any new father, I guess. Nervous, but wonderful. The show highlighted a parade with an international theme, the Firehouse 5 Plus 2 Dixieland Band, a fleet of Mark V Utopia cars, and floats representing each of the new attractions. As part of those rededication ceremonies, a water ballet with real mermaids appeared in the submarine lagoon. Disneyland hired professional swimmers who were fitted with flexible lower bodies and tails. 
Disneyland's director of entertainment, Tommy Walker, choreographed the mermaids. The mermaids were so popular they returned in 1965 as part of the Disneyland Tencennial celebration. Vice President and Mrs. Richard Nixon and their two daughters joined Walt and Lillian for the ribbon-cutting ceremony of the monorail. A Disneyland cast member remembered the minor struggle that ensued. There was just no way that the giant pair of scissors were going to cut through the ribbon. The scissors were made for ceremonial pictures, but they couldn't cut hot butter. Finally, we had to reach out and tear the ribbon in half. The red Mark I monorail was piloted by Bob Gurr on opening day. The first passengers were Walt Disney and Vice President Nixon and his family. The people at Alwig were amazed. One engineer said, We never put the public on a train in less than seven years. In six months' time, you Americans put your own vice president on one. Mm. Bob Gurr recalled, It was then I realized what we did at WED. Monorail Blue joined the fleet on July 3rd. On March 28, 1958, Locomotive Number no. 3, the Fred Gurley, joined the Disneyland and Santa Fe Railroad fleet, named after the chairman of the board of the Santa Fe Railroad. The Gurley was the first narrow-gauge industrial engine to be rebuilt for the park. It was built by Baldwin in 1894 and was in storage. Roger Brogy purchased the locomotive for $1,200. On July 25, 1959, the Santa Fe and Disneyland Railroad fleet grew with the addition of locomotive number four, the Ernest S. Marsh, named after the president of the Santa Fe Railroad from 1957 to 1966. The locomotive was built in April 1925 by Baldwin. Roger Brogy saw it advertised for sale in a railroad trade publication and bought it for the park. Ward Kimball helped with the design and restoration. The March Marsh pulled the newly built river train, which had all the seats facing inside the park, and replaced the unpopular cattle cars on the E.P. Ripley. Shortly after the 1959 grand reopening, the news media broke one of the most bizarre stories involving Disneyland. Soviet Premier Nikita Khrushchev had been touring the United States and expressed a desire to visit Disneyland whilst he was out west. Disneyland security worked with local law enforcement to prepare for the visit, but the Secret Service could not be convinced that effective security precautions would be in place to safeguard Khrushchev's visit. The Soviet premier exploded, and I say I would very much like to go and see Disneyland, but then we cannot guarantee your security, they say? Then what must I do? Commit suicide? What hmm. is it? Is there an epidemic of cholera there or something? Or have gangsters taken hold of the place that can destroy me? Maybe. Khrushchev left Los Angeles the next morning. The spectacle of a head of a superpower state behaving like a child deprived of a treat and exploding in a temper tantrum became an international incident. Comedian Bob Hope quipped to an Alaskan audience, Here we are in America's 49th state, Alaska. That's halfway between Khrushchev and Disneyland. Walt Disney was greatly disappointed that Khrushchev could not visit the park. He had a line ready for the Soviet leader's arrival. Well now, Mr. Khrushchev, here's my Disneyland submarine fleet. It's the eighth largest submarine fleet in the world. Walt was not ready to rest from the success of the second grand opening editions. He wanted to further develop Frontierland. 
to prepare for the changes while permanently closed the Conestoga wagons and the Rainbow Mountain stagecoaches on September 13, 1959. The pack mules closed temporarily on October 2nd and the Rainbow Caverns mine train on October 13th to make way for something new. During this time, Imagineers Rolly Crump and Yale Gracie began to develop many of the early illusions for the Haunted Mansion, and Mark Davis was working on early concepts for a pirate attraction. I will explore these attractions and the development of New Orleans Square in a future episode of 60 Years of Disneyland. On May 28, 1960, the Mine Train Through Nature's Wonderland opened as the largest single attraction at the park, covering seven acres. Nature's Wonderland was an all-new animated extravaganza inspired by Walt Disney's True Life Adventure films, The Living Desert, Beaver Valley, Bear Country, and Olympic Elk. The gateway to the new wilderness was an expanded mining town of Rainbow Ridge with the addition of an opera house, dance hall, snowshoe miller's hides, and Rainbow Ridge outfitters. The locomotives from Rainbow Caverns were reused and the trains were painted yellow and expanded to seven cars. Capacity was increased to 74 guests. In addition to more than 200 very real and not-so-real species of animals and birds, and 156 different species of real trees and plants, over $2.5 were spent to create Nature's Wonderland. Publicity for Nature's Wonderland marks the first use of the term audio-animatronics. Animator Mark Davis was assigned to the project and injected a bit of his humor. He had been working at the studio when studio executives began considering discontinuing making animated films. Walt was a fan of Davis and decided his unique talents could be helpful at Wend. Davis's approach was to create storytelling tableaus that could be quickly understood as the trains passed by. The goal was to have the animals look as though they were doing their daily activities just before the train would have frightened them off. Some of the figures were animated, and at a quick glance, this made the motionless figures come alive as well. It was a convincing illusion. Some of these first audio-animatronic figures did not fare too well, not due to any limitations of this new technology, but because the pretend wilderness of Frontierland was rapidly becoming a real wilderness. As the areas surrounding Disneyland continued to develop, the local natural habitats were quickly disappearing. Real animals in search of a new habitat soon discovered the park and made it their home. When those real animals saw a delectable bird or squirrel sitting in plain view, they'd pounce on their prey and take a big bite before discovering they were biting into plastic. Over and over, the Imagineers would install an audio-animatronic animal at night, only to find its ravaged carcass the next morning. (laughs) Wed's first opportunity to participate in a World's Fair had been at the United States Pavilion at the 1958 World's Fair in Brussels, Belgium. It produced a new Sir Carrama film, America the Beautiful, which took visitors on a tour of the United States from New York Harbor to San Francisco's Golden Gate. The film debuted at Disneyland on June 14, 1960. Walt had a special affection for wishing wells. He said, Wishing has long been a favorite subject of mine. Wishes have come true for many of the characters in my motion pictures, and for me too. 
the Variety Club of America wanted to sponsor a wishing well at Disneyland and use the money to benefit children's charities from around the world. Walt was happy with the idea and spawned the idea for the Snow White Wishing Well and Grotto. Walt had been given a set of beautiful Carrera marble statues of Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, carved by Italian artist Leonida Parma. The statues were modeled after a set of soaps being sold in Europe. When the statues arrived, Disney artist John Hench noticed Snow White was the same height as the dwarfs. Hench came up with a solution. He used forced perspective by placing Snow White at the top of the grotto next to a deer that was in the right scale. The dwarfs were placed lower and closer to the guests, creating the illusion that everything is correct. The Snow White Wishing Well and Grotto opened on April 9, 1960 at the east side of the castle. A new landmark was added to Fantasyland at the end of 1960, Skull Rock Lagoon, inspired by the 1952 film Peter Pan. Many of the rock artists who worked on the Matterhorn had worked to complete Skull Rock Lagoon. It became a photo spot, an eating area for the Chicken of the Sea Pirate Ship Restaurant, and it blocked the view of the Casey Jr. Circus Train, which was not consistent with the pirate ship in foreground. A waterfall poured through the teeth of Skull Rock. A new four-car monorail tomb um, debuted on June 12, 1961. The trains were longer at 112 feet, and each train could carry 108 guests. These trains had the double bubble top. Walt loved the view from the pilot's seat of the Mark I cab, so he suggested the Bob Gurr to move the driver and find a place for the guests to enjoy the view from the bubble. The monorail also became a true transportation system when the track was extended to the Disneyland Hotel. Bob Gurr was also working on another Tomorrowland attraction, the bumper cars of the future. One day, a German salesman visited Wed with a small propeller-powered hovercraft. Walt asked Gurr to check it out. With a blade spinning at high speed directly below the guest, Gerd determined it would not be long before somebody was seriously injured. As an alternative, he took a look at a new system being promoted by Arrow Development, which worked like a giant air hockey table. Walt told Joe Fowler and Roger Brogy to work with Arrow to develop a prototype hovercraft, which at Disneyland would be called a saucer. Roger Brogy remembered when Walt decided to prepare a launching pad in Tomorrowland. We figured that we could move a 2,000-pound payload if we had an air jet below with valves that allow air to come up through the holes in the floor. At Disneyland, the saucers would float on a bed of air produced by four giant blowers mounted below ground. To maintain air pressure, a complex 16,000-square-foot network of air ducts with holes and valves was installed. As a flying saucer passed over a valve, the air pressure would become imbalanced and the valve would open. This provided the lift. The constant air pressure would quickly close the valve once the saucer had moved on. Gerd designed the sleek flying saucers and received the patent for the design. Sixty-four single-seat saucers were put into production. Pilots could steer their saucers by leaning one way or another, lean forward and the air would escape out the back of the saucer's skirt, pushing the guest forward, lean back and the saucer moved back, move either way too quickly and the saucer would stall. A heavy person would just sit there whilst a very light child would just bounce around. 
If two saucers collided just right, the speeding saucer would wedge beneath the saucer it hit, sometimes flipping it upside down. The new attraction opened on August 8, 1961. The attraction was popular with guests, but was plagued by continuous maintenance problems. The saucers flew for five years, carrying 5,313,882 pilots before flying away for good on August 5, 1966. The growth of Disneyland in Anaheim exceeded all expectations. There was one major problem. Most of the money came in the summer, so cash flow was uneven. Another concern, although Disneyland welcomed its 25th millionth guest on April 19, 1961, Dr. Glenn C. Franklin, attendance in 1961 was down slightly to 4.7 million. To even out the dips in the off-season, Disneyland was the key player in establishing the Anaheim Visitor and Convention Bureau to promote Anaheim as a year-round tourist destination. Disney's primary contribution was to give the Bureau interest-free loans to get the organization started. In 1962, Walt turned his attention away from the park to focus on the upcoming 1964 New York World's Fair. He had convinced Ford Motors, General Electric, and the state of Illinois to fund the research and development for three new state-of-the-art shows, the Ford Skyway, GE Carousel of Progress, and Illinois Animatronic Lincoln Exhibit that would appear at the fair before being installed at Disneyland. I will talk about the New York's World's Fair and its impact on Disneyland in my next episode of 60 Years of Disneyland. Now, Walt needed to make room for the Haunted Mansion and New Orleans Square, so the Swift Chicken Plantation House was removed on January 7, 1962. By April, the train track was moved away from the Rivers of America to prepare for the Haunted Mansion. The original Frontierland train station and water tower were moved to the other side of the tracks. The Adventureland jungle had grown quickly, with some of the bamboo stalks along the Jungle Cruise banks reaching 30 feet tall. To prepare for the addition of the African Velt and the Elephant Bathing Pool, the river was extended to 1,920 feet. The two-story Jungle Cruise boathouse was removed and rebuilt as a single-story structure. The jungle became the perfect backdrop to Disneyland's first dinner theater, the Stouffer's Tahitian Terrace, which opened in June 1962 to bring a little South Seas atmosphere to Adventureland. In 1961, Walt asked Bill Evans to relocate a beautiful coral tree away from the jungle riverbank so he could replace it with what Evans called an ersatz tree, which is a tree made out of concrete. To fill the needs of the new Tahitian Terrace show, a much larger tree was required to house all the lights and sound systems for the show. Evans quickly devised a revolutionary new method for transplanting the coral tree to another location in Adventureland, where it still thrives. After the artificial tree was completed at the Tahitian Terrace, Walt sat in the upper terrace and discovered they needed more height to optimize guest sight lines. Well, it's too damn late now, muttered a construction worker. Walt asked with great curiosity, why can't we just cut through the trunk and add a piece to raise it up to the height we really need? Such a simple idea seemed totally absurd at first, but it turned out to be the only solution. The concrete tree was successfully force-grown to meet the requirements of the new show. 
guests of the Tahitian Terrace could experience exotic foods like sizzling teriyaki steak, savory shrimp tempura, mm. fried almonds and rich egg batter, and raisin ice cream topped with flaming caramel sauce. It was considered by many guests to have the best food in the park. A popular drink was the non-alcoholic Planter's Punch Tahitian. Entertainment was provided by the Royal Tahitians, a fire dance, a barefoot firewalker, and the popular hula dancers. Between the Tahitian Terrace and an earlier Tom Sawyer Island treehouse, Wed now had the accumulated design experience and construction know-how to take on the first high-rise treehouse in the world, a 150-ton man-made wonder that would rise some 70 feet over the jungle in Adventureland. Based on the popular 1960 Disney film Swiss Family Robinson, it would provide spectacular views of the jungle river below from treehouse rooms fashioned from the ship's wreckage. Playing in the background was the memorable Swiss Polka by Disney staff composer Buddy Baker. The first of the actual roots for the Swiss Family Robinson Treehouse went into Disneyland soil on January 17, 1962. Just 10 months later, at 2 p.m. on November 18th, a 60-foot-tall Disney Adendron Semper Florens Grandis, the large, ever-blooming Disney tree, was opened. It took countless craftsmen plus $254,900 to make the tree grow. Its steel limbs are covered in concrete, and its roots go down more than 40 feet into the ground. Apparently, there hadn't been a lot of tree climbers at WED, since most of the designers thought the treehouse would be a waste of space and money. No one would climb all the way to the top, they moaned, only to have to negotiate their way back down. But as usual, Walt was right. And af right after the opening of the treehouse, the adult climbers outnumbered the children three to one. Huh. App apparently, everybody wants a treehouse. Throughout the park, small improvements were being made. The Adventureland Bazaar was remodeled in 1962. Imagineer Roly Crump was put in charge of the six-week project and given a budget of $38,000. To expedite the process, Crump found items in the boneyard. He also recycled pieces of trim from the Swift Chicken Plantation House. Roly created three intimate shops separated by the floor materials and old ticket booths as cash register stands. Guests could browse the unique items from General Lee's shop, Guatemalan Weavers, and the Magic Carpet. Now, According to Roly, when he started working on the project, Ken Anderson took him aside and said, Now you guys remember that when you're designing anything at Disneyland, you're the gods. You tell them what you want, and you make sure they do it your way no matter what. Then Roly met with Walt Disney, who told him, you got to remember that there are electricians, there are plumbers, there's air conditioning. You've got to work around that. They're just as important as you are. Backed up behind the Tahitian Terrace but facing Main Street was the turn-of-the-century Plaza Pavilion Restaurant Cafeteria. Guests could dine outside on the dining porches or sit on the Umbrella Terrace. It shared a kitchen with the Tahitian Terrace. Bill Evans recalled that when he planted a pepper tree beside the restaurant, Walt walked by and made a comment in passing that it was a little too close to the curb. Overnight, Evans and his crew moved a 10-ton tree back a few feet, and the next day we walked by and Walt didn't say a word. He just smiled. 
By the end of 1962, the scaffolding from the haunted mansion had been removed. The house's exterior design had long been a source of controversy at WED. Ken Anderson had imagined a decaying house set back from the pathway, but Walt opposed that idea, and the project got put on the back burner. When Harriet Burns came onto the project, she built three models, two haunted and one the way it looks now. Burns recalled, We kept pushing that one back, and Walt kept picking it. When we asked why, he said, Because I want everything in Disneyland to look good. He was always right. The house would remain empty for six years as guests peeked through the wrought iron fencing, fueling dozens of rumors. Walt Disney wanted to continue developing audio animatronics for attractions in the parks. Around 1959, Walt was pondering over an idea of a Hall of Presidents as the big attraction for a new realm at Disneyland to be called Liberty Square, using audio animatronics. Walt figured he would start with animating his favorite president, Abraham Lincoln. However, it would not be a president who would debut this new technology. Instead, it would be a flock of talkative birds and sinking flowers. On June 23, 1963, Walt Disney's Enchanted Tiki Room opened as the first fully audio-animatronic show. In my June 27, 2013 Dis Unplugged Disneyland podcast segment, I talk about the groundbreaking history of the Enchanted Tiki Room, Walt Disney's Tropical Hideaway. Shortly after the opening of the Swiss Family Robinson Treehouse in 1962, Walt Disney focused his attention on the original attraction in Adventureland. He knew the Jungle Cruise animation acted up now and again. He once quipped, I know those alligators work. I've seen it on television. But he found no other reason to fault his beloved jungle attraction. Still one of the most popular attractions in Disneyland. Until one day... He was out in front of the Jungle Cruise, watching and listening to the guests as he usually did. He overheard a guest remark to her friends, We don't need to go on this ride. We've already seen it. At that moment, Walt Disney was reminded he always had to keep the show fresh, and the concept of plussing was born. He said, We can't be satisfied, even though we'll get the crowds. We've always got to give them a little more. It will be worth the investment. If they ever stop coming, it'll cost ten times that much to get them back. Walt's outlook was, Whenever I go on a ride, I'm always thinking of what's wrong with the thing and how it can be improved. To that end, Walt thought it would be fun to have little vignettes representative of each land as a special treat for riders of the Santa Fe and Disneyland Railroad. Walt's hope was the guests would see something they liked and would be encouraged to visit the attraction. So he asked animator Mark Davis to visit Disneyland and see if he had any ideas. For many years, Davis's forte had been strong, easy-to-identify visual humor in Disney animated classics. Walt's ability to see the humorous side of nature in terms of human traits had earned his True Life Adventure film several Academy Awards. Davis decided to add a humorous touch to Disneyland attractions in a natural extension of what Walt had already proven to be a success. This comic touch would be applied to a number of Disneyland attractions in the future as a Davis signature. Davis developed all sorts of gags, including members of a trapped safari who would have climbed up a post with a rhinoceros close behind. Walt was so impressed he decided to forego the preview tableau along the railroad and to install the scene in the Jungle Cruise. 
Davis continued to design gags, such as the African Velt, where a variety of animals were watching a pride of lions guarding their prey, and a sacred pool of elephants frolicking in the water and rising up to spray the jungle cruise boats. The Mark Davis fantasy humor touch introduced to Harper Goff's original designs based on realism changed the attraction from reality to fantasy and was astonishing and controversial. There were some square people working down there, Mark Davis recalled. You know, Joe Fowler couldn't stand me originally because he was basically running the whole thing, sort of the overall manager, and everything I did involved a change or something down there. He wasn't very happy with that. The new scenes would have to wait until the 1964 New York World's Fair projects were done. When the Jungle Cruise closed and reopened in 1964, it was a very different attraction and sparked debates. Could true-life realism coexist with fantasy caricatures? Could a sense of adventure be preserved in the face of cartoon-like gags? For the most part, the public response was positive. Guests seemed to appreciate the departure from reality to fantasy. And the public response, as Walt liked to point out to critics, is really all that matters. Walt enjoyed the addition of humor to the park, but he also continued to include educational accuracy to his attractions. Walt had added the sailing ship Columbia to create a more active Rivers of America waterfront, but he also wanted to use the vessel as a way to instruct. Opening February 22, 1964, the lower deck was outfitted as it would have appeared in 1787, when the commercial ship set sail to circumnavigate the globe, traveling 41,899 miles in three years. On display were eight bunks, a galley, a sail and rope-making display, officers' quarters, bilge pump, cargo bales, navigation charts, and a mess table allowing guests to walk below deck and imagine what life aboard the ship might have been like. In 1965, Disneyland reached its 10th birthday and was preparing for major growth as it reached for the installation, as it prepared for the installation of the attractions from the 1964 New York's World's Fair. The park called this celebration the Tencennial, and the success of his pavilions at the World's Fair had given Walt the confidence to reach even higher. Over 10 years, the Disney organization had poured more than $53 million into the park. Annual attendance went from 3.8 million in 1955 to more than 6.4 million in 1965. All this took place within the 65 acres surrounded by the berm. Walt Disney Productions' confidence in the project was now firm, and on February 2nd, they purchased Wed Enterprises. In a meeting with Walt in late 1964, John Hench had been toying with an idea of a spaceport for Tomorrowland. Hench recalled, Walt didn't call it Space Mountain at that time, but he felt we needed an attraction in Tomorrowland that would present the future through space travel. Walt wanted to build a roller coaster style ride, but in the dark, which no one had ever done before. He wanted to have precise control of the lighting and to be able to project moving images on the interior walls. Walt had a prophetic ability and knowledge of how to bring different experiences together in a perfect blend, and he knew Space Mountain would be an attraction that would enrich the guests' experience one step farther. 
By February, Hench had drafted the now-famous image of a futuristic cone with the hopes that the attraction could make it into the plans for the Tomorrowland update scheduled for 1967. New to Main Street and overlooking the Plaza Hub was the Plaza Inn, which opened on July 18th at a cost of $1.7 million, and replaced the Red Wagon Inn. Designed by John Hench, the Plaza Inn was a plush Victorian restaurant with specially made bevel-leaded glass windows and abundant mirrors. It featured two dining rooms with 18th-century crystal chandeliers, two lighted lamp dining porches, two dining terraces with slightly elevated seating areas to encourage people watching. As part of the 10th anniversary celebration, Walt gathered the cast members who had participated in the grand opening day into the Magnolia Ballroom of the Disneyland Hotel on July 15, 1965. This was an important moment for Walt. He was with the people who made his dream come true, and it was a chance for him to reflect on the past and to share his ideas for the future. He began with a humorous story on how he had found comedian Wally Bogue, the star of the long-running Golden Horseshoe Review. Even, the show, even though the show had been running ten years, Bogue quipped, We're still in rehearsal, Walt. Walt replied, Yeah, that's my tagline. Then he turned to Admiral Joe Fowler and said, We had to have somebody that could take a hold of this thing and really make it work. So we were told about this retired admiral who had run the San Francisco Navy Yard. Walt had first hired Fowler as a part-time consultant, but little by little we got him sort of trapped into the thing. As Walt reflected on the problems of getting Disneyland started, he recalled how everybody had asked, What the hell's he want with that damn amusement park for? Walt's simple explanation was, I wanted it. He described how the NBC and CBS television networks had fought him and how ABC had profited from the relationship. Shortly after the park opened, the bankers had told Roy Disney they would not lend the brothers any more money. Roy, who could be very direct, had told them, Well, if you're going to start running our business, we're, gonna, we're going out and find some other place we can borrow money. Walt told the audience, By gosh, they finally gave him the money. If we could have bought more land, we'd have bought it, Walt said. We could have control, and it wouldn't look too much like a second-rate Las Vegas around here. However, the brothers ran out of money, and by the time we did have a little money, everybody got wise to what was going on, and we couldn't buy anything around the place at all, you know? Walt and Roy were grateful to the cast members who had been a part of making this thing come cross. He, Walt said, it's just been a sort of dress rehearsal, and we're just getting started. But he warned them, If any of you start to rest on your laurels, I mean just a forget it. To prove his point, Walt made reference to Dick Nunes, who was running Disneyland by this time. Walt related how Nunes would tell him, You know, we've got to take care of these people. To Walt, that meant trying to enlarge the park to take care of the extra millions Dick thinks we're going to gain every year. We do have plans to expand, to open up areas that will... It's like a sponge, Walt said about the future. You have to have these areas to absorb the people, you know. He spoke about the new Tomorrowland, New Orleans Square, the Haunted Mansion, maybe even a new Fantasyland in 1966, referring to the addition of It's a Small World. 
He promised $40-plus dollars worth of stuff planned out for the next five years if he could secure the money. With confidence, Walt told his cast members, You know, my office is above my brother's, and I look down, and when I see him walking on the ceiling, you know, that's the time I go down and say, Let's put another $10 million in Disneyland. And lately he's been walking all around that ceiling. He ended with, As I say, we're just getting started, you know. In my next episode of 60 Years of Disneyland, I'll talk about Walt Disney and the 1964 New York World's Fair. In the meantime, if you would like to learn more about Walt Disney and Disneyland, I suggest reading some of the sources I used for this episode. Walt Disney and American Original by Bob Thomas. The Disneyland Story, The Unofficial Guide to the Evolution of Walt's Dream by Sam Genoway. Designing Disney by John Hench. Design Just for Fun by Bob Gurr. It's Kind of a Cute Story by Rolly Crump. Disneyland The Inside Story by Randy Bright. Disneyland The Nickel Tour by Bruce Gordon and David Mumford. The E-Ticket Magazine series now available from the Walt Disney Family Museum gift shop. Thank you for listening and be magical. Awesome. Thank you, Michael. That is going to do it for this segment of the Design Plug. Be sure to catch all of our other Disneyland shows this week. And of course, we'll be back in with you next week. Until then, remember, Disneyland is always more magical when it's shared. Thanks for listening.